Chapter Twelve, Part Three of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orzee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The End, Part Three. Half an hour later, she called to me, asked for her hat, told me to put on mine, and to come out for a stroll. As so often happened, she led the way towards the Elkhorn Woods, which, in spite or perhaps because of the painful memories they evoked, was a very favorite walk of hers. As a rule, the wood, especially that portion of it where the unfortunate solicitor had been murdered, was deserted after sunset. The villagers declared that Mr. Stedman's ghost haunted the clearing, and that the cry of the murdered man, as he was being foully struck from behind, could be distinctly heard, echoing through the trees. Needless to say, these superstitious fancies never disturbed Lady Molly. She liked to wander over the ground where was committed that mysterious crime, which had sent to ignominy worse than death the man she loved so passionately. It seemed as if she meant to wrench its secret from the silent ground, from the leafy undergrowth, from the furtive inhabitants of the glades. The sun had gone down behind the hills, the wood was dark and still. We strolled up as far as the first clearing, where a plain granite stone, put up by Mr. Philip Baddock, marked the spot where Mr. Stedman had been murdered. We sat down on it to rest. My dear lady's mood was a silent one. I did not dare to disturb it, and for a while only the gentle hush of the leaves, stirred by the evening breeze, broke the peaceful stillness of the glade. Then we heard a murmur of voices, deep-toned and low. We could not hear the words spoken, though we both strained our ears, and presently Lady Molly arose, and cautiously made her way among the trees in the direction whence the voices came, I following as closely as I could. We had not gone far when we recognized the voices, and heard the words that were said. I paused, distinctly frightened, whilst my dear lady whispered a warning, Hush! Never in all my life had I heard so much hatred, such vengeful malignity expressed in the intonation of the human voice, as I did in the half-dozen words which now struck my ear. "'You will give her up, or—' It was Mr. Falcon who spoke. I recognized his raucous delivery, but I could not distinguish either of the two men in the gloom. "'Or what?' queried the other, in a voice which trembled with either rage or fear, perhaps with both. "'You will give her up,' repeated Falcon sullenly. "'I tell you that it is an impossibility, do you understand? An impossibility for me to stand by and see her wedded to you, or to any other man for the matter of that?' but that is neither here nor there, he added after a slight pause. It is with you I have to deal now. You shan't have her. You shan't. I won't allow it, even if I have to. He paused again. I cannot describe the extraordinary effect this rough voice, coming out of the darkness, had upon my nerves. I had edged up to Lady Molly, and had succeeded in getting hold of her hand. It was like ice, and she herself was as rigid as that piece of granite on which we had been sitting." "'You seem bubbling over with covert threats,' interposed Philip Baddock, with what was obviously a sneer. "'What are the extreme measures to which you will resort if I do not give up the lady whom I love with all my heart, and who has honoured me to-day by accepting my hand in marriage?' "'That is a lie!' ejaculated Falcon. "'What is a lie?' queried the other quietly. "'She has not accepted you, and you know it. You are trying to keep me away from her, arrogating rights which you do not possess.' Give her up, man, give her up. It will be best for you. She will listen to me. I can win her all right. But you must stand aside for me this time. Take the word of a desperate man for it, Baddock. It will be best for you to give her up. Silence reigned in the wood for a few moments, 
and then we heard Philip Baddock's voice again, but he seemed to speak more calmly, almost indifferently, as I thought. "'Are you going now?' he asked. "'Won't you come in to dinner?' "'No,' replied Felkin. "'I don't want any dinner, and I have an appointment for afterwards.' "'Don't let us part ill friends, Felkin,' continued Philip Baddock, in conciliatory terms. "'Do you know that, personally? My feeling is that no woman on earth is worth a serious quarrel between two old friends, such as we have been.' "'I'm glad you think so,' rejoined the other dryly. "'So long.' The cracking of twigs on the moss-covered ground indicated that the two men had parted and were going their several ways. With infinite caution, and holding my hand tightly in hers, my dear lady made her way along the narrow path which led us out of the wood. Once in the road we walked rapidly, and soon reached our garden gate. Lady Molly had not spoken a word during all that time, and no one knew better than I did how to respect her silence. During dinner she tried to talk of indifferent subjects, and never once alluded to the two men whom she had thus willfully pitted one against the other. That her calm was only on the surface, however, I realized from the fact that every sound on the gravel path outside caused her to start. She was, of course, expecting the visit of Mr. Felkin. At eight o'clock he came. It was obvious that he had spent the past hour in wandering about in the woods. He looked untidy and unkempt. My dear lady greeted him very coldly, and when he tried to kiss her hand she withdrew it abruptly. Our drawing-room was a double one, divided by portier curtains. Lady Molly led the way into the front room, followed by Mr. Felkin. Then she drew the curtains together, leaving me standing behind them. I concluded that she wished me to stay there and to listen, conscious of the fact that Felkin, in the agitated mood in which he was, would be quite oblivious of my presence. I almost pitied the poor man, for to me, the listener, it was at once apparent that my dear lady had only bidden him come to-night in order to torture him. For about a year she had been playing with him as a cat does with a mouse, encouraging him at times with sweet words and smiles, repelling him at others with coldness not unmixed with coquetry. But to-night her coldness was unalloyed, her voice was trenchant, her attitude almost one of contempt. I missed the beginning of their conversation, for the curtains were thick, and I did not like to go too near. But soon Mr. Felkin's voice was raised. It was harsh and uncompromising." "'I suppose that I am only good enough for a summer's flirtation,' he said sullenly. "'But not to marry, eh? The owner of Appledore Castle, the millionaire Mr. Baddock, is more in your line.' "'It certainly would be a more suitable match for me,' rejoined Lady Molly coolly. "'He told me you had formally accepted him,' said the man, with enforced calm. "'Is that true?' "'Partly,' she replied. "'But you won't marry him.' The exclamation seemed to come straight from a heart brimful of passion, of love, of hate, and of revenge. The voice had the same intonation in it which had rung an hour ago in the dark Elkhorn woods. "'I may do,' came in quiet accents from my dear lady. "'You won't marry him,' repeated Felkin roughly. "'Who shall prevent me?' retorted Lady Molly, with a low, sarcastic laugh. "'I will.' "'You,' she said contemptuously. I told him an hour ago that he must give you up. I tell you now that you shall not be Philip Baddock's wife. Oh, she interposed, and I could almost see the disdainful shrug of her shoulders, the flash of contempt in her expressive eyes. No doubt it maddened him to see her so cool, so indifferent, when he had thought that he would win her. I do believe that the poor wretch loved her. 
She was always beautiful, but never more so than to-night, when she had obviously determined finally to dismiss him. "'If you marry Philip Baddock,' he said now, in a voice which quivered with uncontrolled passion, "'then within six months of your wedding day you will be a widow, for your husband will have ended his life on the gallows.' "'You are mad,' she retorted calmly. "'That is as it may be,' he replied. "'I warned him to-night, and he seems inclined to heed my warning. But he won't stand aside if you beckon to him. Therefore, if you love him, take my warning. I may not be able to get you, but I swear to you, Philip Baddock shan't either. I'll see him hanged first, he added, with gruesome significance. "'And you think that you can force me to do your bidding by such paltry threats?' she retorted. "'Paltry threats? Ask Philip Baddock if my threats are paltry. He knows full well that in my room at Appledore Castle, safe from thievish fingers, lie the proofs that he killed Alexander Steadman in the Elkhorn Woods. Oh, I wouldn't help him in his nefarious deeds until he placed himself in my hands. He had to take my terms, or leave the thing alone altogether, for he could not work without me. My wants are few, and he has treated and paid me well. Now we are rivals, and I'll destroy him before I'll let him gloat over me. Do you know how we worked it? Sir Jeremiah would not disinherit his grandson. He steadily refused to make a will in Philip Baddock's favor. But when he was practically dying, we sent for Alexander Steadman, a newcomer, who had never seen Sir Jeremiah before, and I impersonated the old gentleman for the occasion. Yes, I, he repeated with a coarse laugh. I was Sir Jeremiah for the space of half an hour, and I think I played the part splendidly. I dictated the terms of a new will. Young Stedman never suspected the fraud for a single instant. We had darkened the room for the comedy, you see, and Stedman was destined by Baddock and myself never to set eyes on the real Sir Jeremiah. After the interview, Baddock sent for Captain de Mazarin. This was all part of his plan and mine. We engineered it all, and we knew that Sir Jeremiah could only last a few hours. We sent for Stedman again, and I myself scattered a few dozen sharp nails along the loose stones in the road where the motor-car was intended to break down, thus forcing the solicitor to walk through the woods. Captain de Mazarin's appearance on the scene at that particular moment was an unrehearsed effect, which nearly upset all our plans, for had Mr. Stedman stuck to him that night, instead of turning back, he would probably be alive now, and Baddock and I would be doing time somewhere for attempted fraud. We should have been done, at any rate. Well, you know what happened. Mr. Stedman was killed. Baddock killed him and then ran straight back to the house, just in time to greet Captain de Mazarin, who evidently had loitered on his way. But it was I who thought of the stick, as an additional precaution to avert suspicion from ourselves. Captain de Mazarin was carrying one and left it in the hall at the castle. I cut my own hand and stained the stick with it, then polished and cleaned it up, and later, during the night, deposited it in the near neighborhood of the murdered body. Ingenious, wasn't it? I'm a clever beggar, you see. Because I was cleverer than Baddock, he could not do without me, and because he could not do without me, I made him write and sign a request to me to help him to manufacture a bogus will, and then to murder the solicitor who had drawn it up. And I have hidden that precious document in the wing of Appledore Castle which I inhabit. The exact spot is known only to myself. Baddock has often tried to find out, but all he knows is that these things are in that particular wing of the house. I have the document— and the draft of the will taken out of Mr. Stedman's pocket, and the short bludgeon with which he was killed. It is still stained with blood, and the rags with which I cleaned the stick. 
I swear that I will never make use of these things against Philip Baddock unless he drives me to it. And if you make use of what I have just told you, I'll swear that I have lied. No one can find the proofs which I hold. But on the day that you marry Baddock, I'll place them in the hands of the police. There was silence in the room. I could almost hear the beating of my own heart. So horrified, so appalled was I at the horrible tale which the man had just told to my dear lady. The villainy of the whole scheme was so terrible, and at the same time so cunning, that it seemed inconceivable that human brain could have engendered it. Vaguely in my dull mind I wondered if Lady Molly would have to commit bigamy before she could wrench from this evildoer's hands the proofs which would set her own husband free from his martyrdom. What she said I did not hear, and what he meant to retort I never knew, for at that moment my attention was attracted by the sound of running footsteps on the gravel, followed by a loud knock at our front door. Instinctively I ran to open it. Our old gardener was standing there, hatless and breathless. "'Appledore Castle, miss,' he stammered. "'It's on fire. I thought you would like to know.' Before I had time to reply I heard a loud oath uttered close to me, and the next moment Falcon dashed out of the drawing-room into the hall. "'Is there a bicycle here I can take?' he shouted to the gardener. "'Yes, sir,' replied the old man. "'My son has one. Just in that shed, sir, on your left.' In fewer seconds than it takes to relate, Falcon had rushed to the shed, dragged out the bicycle, mounted it, and I think that within two minutes of hearing the awful news he was bowling along the road and was soon out of sight. End of Part 3 of The End